This episode was brought to you by State Farm. Buying a house in 2024 can be something extremely joyful, but also extremely stressful when you think about all the paperwork that you have to file. But like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's the phrase that will help you feel good knowing that you have people who care to help you file a claim or find the coverage for the things that you want to protect. After an accident, you may be worried. Who do I call? What do you do next? I drive peacefully knowing that I have people who have my back. In reality, finding good insurance doesn't have to be something that is complicated to you. State Farm has options to fit your unique needs, which means you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, or reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you use the term global feminism to describe what you represent and what you stand for, you understand feminism all around the world. It is not only from a Western perspective. Hopefully, I galvanize and inspire people to get off their sofas to realize that actually we could all be change agents. We could all transform the world in our own way. We don't have to be Bill Gates. You know, we don't have to be billionaires. Improving the lives of women and girls is the key to a better world. We say that all the time on the Global Goals cast. But how do we assure that that happens? What role must men play? In this world where the gender battle is playing out, what is the future of masculinity? And in this context, does the traditional concept of feminism fall short? Is it too exclusive? Is it only for women? In this episode, we talk with an expert. She is both a genuine global activist and an icon of the gender-bending 1980s. And she says we need an inclusive kind of feminism, something she calls global feminism. So you know our guest is a rock star with the rhythmics, her electro beat, and sexy androgynous look caught that MTV moment. And her solo career turned her into an icon. But she has gone on to stand for so much more than pop music. Actually, my name really is Anne Lennox. I was called Anne Lennox for years until someone changed it at the age of 16. A friend said, started calling me Annie. So my name is Annie Lennox, ever since I was 16. Yes, our special guest is Annie Lennox. We're going to talk about her music and about the Sustainable Development Goals, because for more than a decade, Annie has been focused on raising awareness and money for HIV and AIDS, as well as building circles of women in developed countries in order to help women in less advantaged parts of the world. We'll hear all about it right after this. Season two of Global Goalscast is sponsored by MasterCard. Stay tuned later for an interview with Shamina Singh as she tells us about MasterCard's Index of Women Entrepreneurs. 
And also thanks to CBS News Digital and to Harman, the official sound of Global Goalscast. This is the Global Goalscast, the podcast that asks how we can change the world. I'm Edie Lush. And I am Claudia Romo Edelman. Edie, so great that you were able to talk to Annie Lennox. Isn't she cool and amazing? I mean, I know her from even before I was working on public health, when I was working at the World Economic Forum, probably like 18, 20 years ago. She was already there, like one of the first ever very serious and articulated celebrities that was putting her heart and her mouth into the real action. But she also came across as a very humble, normal, and actually authentic human being. What was your impression? She came across as very human to me as well. She's clearly worked incredibly hard to master talking about the sustainable development goals without sucking away the credit from the people who are out there in the field helping to achieve them. I met up with her in the Electric Club in Notting Hill in London. Uh So it set us up in this room above the club, and there was a little bit of a buzzing sound from a generator next door. But I figured Simon James, who's our sound maestro, could do magic and get rid of the buzzing. But she came in, and she looked at me and went, I I thought you were a podcaster. This buzzing is going to give your listeners and me and you a migraine. So we got to move. We got to move next door. So in fact, we did move to the next room. She was right. Buzzing was less. And on we went. For well over a decade now, I've been very involved in advocacy and activism. First of all, it was in connection with HIV and AIDS as it affected women and girls. And then after a while, I, I became really aware that there were so many issues affecting girls and women, particularly in the developing countries. And the roots of all of this came down to global disempowerment. And so HIV and AIDS is one issue. People are less aware of it in the Western world because they tend to have a different concept of HIV. But the HIV AIDS pandemic that really was at its very, very worst in the late 90s and early 2000s was affecting women on an unimaginable scale and still is because in Africa, for example, AIDS is one of the leading causes of death for girls and women of reproductive age. Mm. And we don't talk about that. We're not aware of it. And that's partly what I suppose makes me so passionately committed to being an advocate is the fact that we just don't know about how girls and women live around the world. It was over 15 years ago that you started down this journey, and I believe it was when you met Nelson Mandela, is that right? Well, Nelson Mandela became very active in advocating and trying to make change with regards to South Africa, his country because the the pandemic, the AIDS pandemic at the time, was wiping out over 2,000 people on a daily basis and no one was getting access to treatment. So it was really a dire, unbelievable sort of... He called it a genocide, actually. So he founded an organisation called 46664, his HIV-AIDS foundation, and there was a concert to launch the foundation in November of 2003, which was held in Cape Town. We were invited to perform. And because of that, I had the possibility to visit healthcare facilities, orphanages, 
clinics, people's homes, where people were affected by HIV and AIDS. And I saw the pandemic personally. And that witnessing of the reality hit me so hard that it completely changed the paradigm of my perception as to what poverty looks like, what lack of empowerment looks like, what HIV and AIDS is about if you can't get access to treatment. Ever since then, really, I felt I had to um, use my platform in some way, become an, yeah, become an activist, really. And you have created your own organization now called The Circle. What was the inspiration behind founding that? Well, I don't like to think of The Circle as my organization. I had an idea about what could be done, and I founded something that ended up being called The Circle. But the initial thinking behind The Circle is basically that women in the Western world are hugely resourced, whether we realize it or not. We have access to just about everything we want. We have had the vote for several years now, and we have access to running water, clean running water, hot and cold out of our taps, sanitation, health care. I mean, so many things that we take for granted. But women in the so-called developing world have very little of that and they're nowhere near even the bottommost rung of the ladder when it comes to their rights, to their human rights. Basically, the circle supports grassroots organizations that are run by women or for women. And really, the issues could be anything ranging from access to primary school, education, to healthcare, to knowing one's rights, physical violence, sex trafficking, child brides. There are so many issues that girls face, you know. I'm kind of amazed that more people don't know about what the truth about girls' and women's rights living in countries where they really basically have almost none. Mm. That's why I endorse the term global feminism. And I describe myself as a global feminist and I encourage boys and men to be part of this inclusive term. If you describe yourself as a global feminist, basically you're re representing millions of girls and women that just don't have a voice. And you're making them present and known and you're giving value to that term. She told me that global feminism was a term she'd picked up from Bell Hooks, the feminist author. Hooks wrote a book called Feminism is for Everyone, which is sometimes described as the answer to the question, when's International Men's Day? I asked Annie to describe how the projects of the circle were advancing global feminism. So altogether at the moment, we have 11 circles trying to make a difference and transform situations with different organizations that are grassroots organizations. So for example, we have the Marie Colvin Journalist Circle, which works with female journalists in the Middle East, trying to advise, mentor, empower them, and advise them to keep their lives safe. This is because of Marie Colvin, the renowned war correspondent who was killed in Holmes about seven years ago. There's a currently as a film about Marie that people may or may not have seen called A Private War. We also have an organization in South Africa called Non-Seba that we support. It's a shelter for really victims of violence, domestic violence. They come there with their children and they have a safe haven. There's 
accommodation for a few families and basically, you know, you're, you're talking about a township, let's say Kailicha, which is outside of Cape Town, which um, has about one and a half million residents. And as a woman living there, trying to raise a family, you're in a very precarious situation with a violent partner, a violent father, violence all around you and rape, you know, one in four men in the country have said that they rape and it's actually looked on as quite a normal practice. At the Global Goalscast, we love to focus on the stories of success, how we are making the world a better place. But we also sometimes like to look at the we're things. Far from success. Yeah. Well, sometimes we like to look at the things that haven't gone so well, yeah. the missteps. Well, that's everything. All I can say is that when you look at the UN goal number five, which purports to aspire to equality for girls and women around the globe, at the same time, we know that we are so, so far away from it that people describe progress as being glacially slow. I cannot sit here in all honesty and tell you that I feel hugely optimistic because the statistics that we quote about global feminism are just so unbearable. I mean, to actually think that one in three women around the world have experienced physical or sexual violence in their lifetime, it's, it's that the scale of this abuse is so horrendous and you wonder, well, where do you start? Where do you begin? to even respond to something like that. And what I feel is that it takes a whole cultural, social, uh, psychological zeitgeist shift in attitude. Attitudes need to change before behavior can be changed, you know. Misogyny is about an attitude. And after attitude becomes behavior, misbehavior. And I'm a heterosexual woman and I love men. And part of my sort of resistance years ago to describing myself as a feminist was because I actually felt that that stridency against men was not very helpful because I, I really liked men and I wanted to kind of be their friend. <laughs> but later on now, much later on down the line, I totally get it and I actually really believe stridency is hugely important and it's part of that kind of how would I say, like, there's all kinds of extremes in a movement. You get very, very strident, very, very angry, very, very extreme. That matters. People are angry. And then you get middle ground people that say, yeah, well, I'm not really, you know, a feminist, but I kind of get it. And there's just all kinds of ways to interpret feminism. And you know what? I think at this point in the stage in the game, we must look at ways of being inclusive of everyone. If we call ourselves feminist, we must include the world. So we must also use the term global feminism. And that kind of sums it all up. That mm. is an umbrella term that brings us all to the table and creates a sort of harmony rather than this polarization that tends to occur, the splitting that occurs, the factiousness, which I think is not helpful. How do you bring more men and boys along in this journey, do you think? I think, first of all, by giving them permission to come on. There are many men, many, many men who know that feminism just makes absolute sense and they endorse it, but they may be feeling they're unwelcome. 
and that has been expressed for many years vociferously that men are not welcome, that we can do it. Well, of course we can do things but without men supporting us. I realise that. But wouldn't it be better if we had men and boys on board the debate so that we could help them to be agents of change, change their attitudes, change their cultural behaviour, their historical behaviour? I think men must be part of this whole picture. Can you define what is a global feminist? How is it different from a normal feminist? If you use the term global feminism to describe what you represent and what you stand for, you understand feminism all around the world. It is not only from a Western perspective. You know, for example, that one out of three women have experienced physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. You know, for example, that HIV and AIDS is one of the biggest killers of girls of reproductive age in Africa. You know that the facts are so outrageous, so extreme. The disempowerment is so extreme. You know what you're representing. You also could be a man <laughs> or a young man can comfortably describe themselves as a global feminist without feeling uncomfortable with the term. It wasn't that long ago when we couldn't really comfortably use the word feminist, mm. that people that actually were feminist were uncomfortable with it because it may be said, oh, maybe it means I hate men. Did you, you know? feel that? Back in the 70s, I felt that I wasn't strident enough. I felt that I was too soft, you know, because I wanted to wear high heels and I wanted to wear red lipstick and I wanted to shave my legs and dye my hair and do what I and wear makeup, see? So I thought maybe I'm just not good enough to be a feminist because I'm kind of betraying, you know, something. It's so interesting because attitudes change and shift. And then as I grew older, I realized, oh my goodness, I so am a feminist. <laughs> so <laughs> feminist, really? And now, now I say I'm a global feminist because I want to, to always incorporate everything that's happening in the world, not just in the, you know, in the Western countries. After the break, we will hear more from Annie Lennox on feminism, gay rights, her music and being a mom. By the way, Edie, did I tell you that my daughter in her last concert in school sang Sweet Dreams Are Made of These? Should I <gasps> send Annie so cool. should I send Annie a recording of it? I think you should. Anyways, first, before going any further with Annie Lennox and having the temptation of singing to you all, which we could, <laughs> could we not? We could. We totally could. Let us share our conversation with a top executive at our sponsor, MasterCard. Her name is Shamina Singh, president of the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. It's important to really think about entrepreneurism, growing business, and think about women in the same conversation. A little known fact is women actually hold the majority of business licenses around the world. But unfortunately, again, the potential of reaching business growth is something that they haven't achieved in the numbers that we'd like to see. So 
We've actually developed an index of women entrepreneurs that we've released the second version. And we look around the globe and we examine sort of what's happening and where. What we're finding is that, indeed, to no surprise, in the developing markets where there are more contracts and rules of the road, formalized protocols, women have a better chance of succeeding. In places where it is a little bit less structured, in developing markets at this point, women don't have as much access. So land rights, for example, and access to capital, things of that sort, harder to achieve. If you think about developing markets and the amount of land that's used for agriculture and who's working that land, it's women. And if you think about the fact that maybe uh, in one particular village or, or something like that, if a person has five acres of land, it all depends on your ability to access the, the tools, the equipment, the information you need to produce that land in a way that works for you and works for your village. Women have to work harder to get the same amount of information that they need to till the soil. It sounds strange, but it's true. And so we've really worked on creating products and technology solutions that recognize that all things don't apply to all people everywhere. So we really have customized something that we're calling the MasterCard Farmers Network. It's a way that we really think we can reach women who, frankly, are the majority of smallholder farmers in the world. This allows women to negotiate from their farm to say, okay, here comes the order, here's what I have, here's what I can produce, here's when I can send it, and then the money comes directly to the woman. So think about that. There are probably five intermediaries, normally, between cash changing hands between the market owner, to the bicycle owner, to the motorcycle, to this, finally gets to the woman. This cuts it all out and says, here's the price, here's how much, here's when, and the market owner sends the transportation out to pick up the produce and bring it back. Welcome back. In the second half of your interview with Annie Lennox, it sounds like you try to get a little bit more personal. <laughs> In fact, Annie started turning the questions on me and even helping me out asking my own questions. What do you think a strong woman is? Well, I think somebody who's okay with who they are mm -hmm. and being comfortable in your own skin. Mm -hmm. I have also heard people say that, you know, you became a bit of a, an icon within the gay and trans community because of the way you dressed at the time with suits and great hair. And does the sexual ambiguity from the time of the 80s and the 90s uh, and how it's kind of become... Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. It? Does it... Well, it's interesting. You want to... I know what you're... I think I know the question that you're kind of... I don't really know what I'm actually no, but I think, I think what you're saying is... Times have changed so significantly mm. over the decades. You know, when I came down to London, I really didn't think I knew anybody who was gay. I didn't even know the word gay because there wasn't a word. And when I came to the Royal Academy of Music, I met lots and lots of gay men, mainly. And they were kind of in the closet. Mm. And so looking back, I've seen how hard it's been for queer people, as I hate these labels, you know, mm. but self-identified queer people to come out of the closet and be comfortable in a world that was always dangerous for them, where they were always being mugged. And it's still a world like that. It can still be a world where you're bullied. And um, now with the millennial generation, that would be my 
daughter's uh, generation. There's a whole other take on gender orientation and sexuality, which is so many light years away from decades ago. And it's really interesting and it's in transit. It's changing all the time. And people are struggling. They're looking for, for labels. They're looking for what is politically correct, what is politically incorrect. Mm. And sometimes older generation has difficulty to, you know, to kind of catch up with it all. But I think that's why a general term like global feminism, which is inclusive, is a beautiful thing because it's very harmonious and it's very accepting of everything and everyone in mm. a way. And it's saying that, yes, feminism can be all things to all people, but actually, could we just look at the bigger picture as well? So in the episode that I just finished that I, in fact, launched today. I had a young comic who, Israeli comic, who left peace building because she found that she could do much more in terms of bringing Jews and Arabs together through comedy than she oh, could yeah. actually as a peace builder. Definitely. So I wonder if mm -hmm. you feel like you're reaching more people now through your activism than you were as a musician. Oh, that's a very good question. As a musician, you know, personally, I wanted to touch people's emotions, their intellect, and articulate feelings through songs. You know, songs are great messages for everyone. They're, you live with songs, they're the background of your life, you know. And for me, there was never really very often any kind of messaging behind them other than just what the songs had to say for themselves, with the exception of maybe sisters are doing it for themselves, which was a very much a feminist anthem back in the 80s, and that was very specific as a celebration of female empowerment. For me now, you know, the music industry has changed so much. It's become more a place of celebrity in a way, although music's still there. But, you know, I would not really personally want to enter into the music industry as it stands now, because it's not really a place that I feel as drawn to. I think you go through your life evolving, hopefully, mm. not, not being stuck. I don't want to be stuck in any decades that may people may think of me, oh yeah, you know, the 80s, the 90s or whatever people have remembered me in popular terms, that's fine. But that was then, this is now, this is who I've been for quite a long time. I'm very outraged and I'm a sensitive person. So I see a lot of injustice wherever I go. And being a woman and being a mother was really another, well, the huge, huge, life changer for me when I understood when you're a mother what you want to do is to protect your child if she's a girl and you're thinking she's going to grow up into a misogynistic world where she's going to experience the kinds of abuses whether they be verbal physical mental whatever they are or the disempowerment that girls grow up into it's not something that you look forward to I look at women who are mothers with awe and respect because I know because of my own experience, just what it takes to bring up a child into this world. And really that was one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about pregnant women who are HIV positive and mm. why they had a human right to deliver an HIV negative baby, which is absolutely possible to do. Mm. 
So I wonder what your aspirations are for the next few years. What does success look like for you? Change is interesting. You think Sam Cooke wrote this fantastic song called Change Is Gonna Come. Just shortly before he died, I believe he was killed in the 60s around the civil rights movement. And around that time, in the late 60s, you know, you really did think a change was going to come, that racism and bigotry and hatred would cease. And after apartheid, you thought that would be the end, you know, to this hideous racism, for example. I'm talking about one issue now that still permeates the entire globe. So things get better, things get worse. I think for me, all I can say is personally, I try to contribute and make the difference that I can. Hopefully I galvanize and inspire people to get off their sofas to realize that actually we could all be change agents. We could all transform the world in our own way. We don't have to be Bill Gates. You know, We don't have to be billionaires. We don't necessarily have to do that or, or leave them to do it. For example, if you're listening to this now and you're thinking, well, what is a global feminist? Maybe I'm a global feminist and you understand what a global feminist means, and you are, you're already becoming an agent for change by endorsing and identifying that title. And that's very powerful, you know? Society just changes, cultures change, the environments change. I hope in my lifetime to see something for the better, and I have seen things change for the better, but I've also seen them change for the worst. So um, I would say, you know, you live your life day to day. You try to make your contribution if you can in your own way. We would love to see the eradication of poverty. We would love to see the reduction of maternal mortality rates in the developing world. We'd love to see women more empowered, respected. We'd love to see men uh, changing attitudes and behaviors in terms of rape, abuse, and violence against girls and women. There's so many things I'd love to see changed. The list is endless. So you seem very settled and passionate as an activist. Do you miss writing music at all? No, I don't. I did write a song recently, and it went on the film A Private War, and that was the song about Marie Colvin, or for Marie, really. I made music so intensely for decades. I performed it, I wrote it, I recorded it. It was the absolute center of my life. And then I had children and I tried to do what women do, which is uh, multitask with my children, try to be a good mother and be there for my kids, but at the same time, keep my artistry up. And now I'm, this, I'm in another phase and I'm not saying that I would never write music, but you know, activism really gives this platform to express really what is much, much more important than entertainment. Not that I feel that music is always entertainment, but in a way, there's an aspect of entertainment and celebrity that I'm not comfortable with anymore. I'm really not comfortable with it. And that life of being told that you are a celebrity rather than being an artist or perceived as being a musician, you know, someone with an intelligence, it really is diminishing. I read that you, in an interview, a previous interview, that you liked the song, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair in from, South, from South Pacific, <laughs> which is both my well, mom hey. and my favorite song. Well, uh, it's such a, you know, it's very cool. And I, just, I remember when I was a little girl watching South Pacific, you know, 
Bally High and the, the fantastic songs. Did you feel a, 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 I don't know, a moment in that song where you thought, God, you know, there's a sort of feminist aspect no, of this? No, I was or... four years old. I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know the word, you know. It's so funny because when you look back on your life through the decades and you think about like what you were exposed to at the time, what were the so social behavioral norms and how did you yourself see yourself in relation to the world, you evolve, if you're fortunate, you evolve or, or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that through life, I have been fortunate in that I have evolved. And, you know, people think, oh, you have one attitude and it never changes and you always think that. I disagree. I think you can see many aspects. There are many truths and many different perspectives and different ways of seeing things. And as I get older, I don't want to get stuck. You know, I want to always look forward and be curious about life. I love that conversation. She is such a serious activist. She's fantastic. And she was one of the pioneers in actually making sure that people were using their celebrity and their fame to highlight issues that were important. I knew Annie Lennox at the beginning when, when I was working for the forum and there was like the launch for the Global Fund there. And then 10 years after, by celebrating this incredible institution, she was always there, and she's still there. She's still there, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has also been part of the Global Fund, is still there. And I'm only mentioning that because our next podcast is going to feature an interview with Sue Desmond-Hillman, who's the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Claudia, I want you to tell me a little bit about how you see the development community grappling with this issue of masculinity and feminism. How's that all knitting together? I think that that's the part where the Annie Lennox episode is so great and so interesting and so rich to open up the discussion about like, okay, so we steer the wheel up. There's a lot of water unsettled about like gender equality and what does it mean um, for young generations, for the development community. And now is the time to explore what is our role to advance the rights of women and girls? And also, what is the role of man in that equation? Could you be a man and be a feminist? And what does that mean? Does it mean that you're interested in putting the agenda forward? Because let's face it, Edie, we've pushed the envelope a lot, but the reality is not there yet. Gender pay is not there. If there's any kid that lacks water, probably is going to be a girl. If there's someone that mm. has to actually go and fetch the food in a family, probably is going to be the girl. So we've not done there yet. And she asked me if I considered myself a global feminist. She asked me if I liked that term. And I thought, you know, that's what we've been doing. That's what Claudia and I have been doing with the podcast for the last year. We've really been talking about how we put women and girls first. We put their stories first. And we have featured those voices from Africa, from Latin America, of those people that you wouldn't normally hear from. And quite often, more than 50 percent of the time, I'd say they're from women and girls. So we understand that poverty is sexist. We could adhere to being global feminist, but we want men as part of the equation. And this is the time for our facts and actions. Three facts to be able to show off with your mother-in-law at dinner and three actions that you can take to make a difference. And to give us those facts and actions, we've got Shauna Jones, who works with Annie Lennox as the executive director of The Circle. And she joined us in the recording of this podcast. My three facts. Number one, 
603 million women live in countries where domestic violence is not considered a crime. Fact number two, out of the 757 million adults who cannot read or write, two out of three are women. And fact number three, over 2.7 billion women are legally restricted from having the same choice of jobs as men. So my three suggested actions are one, find out more about The Circle and join us. So go to www.thecircle.ngo. Number two, join our social media campaign this International Women's Day to support being a global feminist. Take one of those facts I just gave you or find another, write it on a card, hold it up, post it on your social media and hashtag it with one reason why I'm a global feminist. And number three, support our impactful grassroots projects. Go to our website and donate to one of them that you choose. Sweet dreams to everybody from Edie Lush <laughs> and Claudia Romo Edelman. This was our interview with Annie Lennox. And thank you to Annie Lennox and Shauna Jones and Shamina Singh. And goodbye from us. And you must be talking to the angels. <laughs> the angels in the sky. <laughs> Music in this episode was by Andrew Phillips, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, Amy Edwards, Ashish Pillowal, Alex Vallejo, and Ellis. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of MasterCard, CBS News Digital, and Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. This episode would not have been possible without Keith Reynolds, founder and president of Spoke Media, who lent us his ear. The struggle is real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha is real. We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces bromeando y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando. La Lucha is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.